Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and a host for Circular Firing Squad. Tonight, we've got five members, five questions, and five answers for each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the silly to the serious. Let's see who's with us uh, for this episode. Hey, everyone. Eric Perry, clinical faculty at Southern New Hampshire University. Hello, it's Stephanie. I am a doctoral candidate at Kent State University, practicing clinical counselor and co-host of Grad School Deconstructed. Hi, everybody. Elliot Ingersoll, uh, host of Apply Topically, uh, which will be having new episodes this month. I know I keep saying that, but it's really happening. And professor at Cleveland State University, wearer of black shirts and white socks. Hi, everyone. Mitch Conrad, graduate student in uh, clinical mental health counseling. Eric, you got the first question. All right, everybody. So what topics do you want to see more of in counseling research and what might be played out for you at this point? Well, what I like about this question is that I can also say I am fulfilling some of what I want to see. I want to see more tech-based applications in the research and going deeper into the research and, you know, seeing more about how we can integrate technology into the counseling profession. I don't, I, as far as being played out, I mean, I didn't get that far. I didn't get time to think about that. I mean, and I don't have a go-to answer. Like there are some people that are just so adamant about if I never see another blah, blah, blah article again, it'll be too soon. I don't have the blah, blah, blah. Not yet. Anyway, I'll probably figure it out after the show. Eric, what was the second part of the question? I could not hear. I apologize. That's okay. I was just asking if there was something you didn't want to see anymore. Oh, okay. Played out or, you know, we've seen enough of it. That's an easy one for me, boy. I'll tell you that for nothing. What I want to see is I want to see more studies that have to do with just the treatment of general, A, symptom profiles, not DSM disorders, because they may be fiction. They may be all fictitious. But the uh, research domain criteria instituted by the uh, National Institute of Mental Health They broke research down into everything from, you know, the cellular level, what we know about genetics, about molecules, brain circuits. I'd love to see more research using that um, uh, research domain matrix for certain. Uh, And I think we've pretty much milked the gamut on any kind of studies. I'll probably get canceled for this. But just people who are marginalized in this culture, I do appreciate. Yes, they do need to be studied, granted services, but it seems like out of 100 calls for participants, the last 98 have been dealing, it seemed like primarily with people who we would say are marginalized minorities. So, wow, yeah, I think we need research on applying it to all people. I think we've lost sight of the fact that, you know, our sibling discipline, psychology, the majority of studies done there, they're not replicated. So maybe we should start replicating some studies about treatment outcomes, things like that would be good. And then, of course, our sibling discipline psychology, I think the the, the recent meta-analysis, when they did replicate older studies, they only got the same results about 40% of the time. So we need to get straight on, oh, let's, let's define this by suffering, by symptoms. The categories of DSM may not be useful. 
And let's get away from the fad of just focusing on people who have historically been uh, marginalized, uh, but perhaps now the research is catching up enough we can start broadening it. Eric, this this question is really uh, poignant for me this week. Um, I'm in uh, in our program's chemical dependency class, and we've been we have this assignment that we're doing that we're doing on uh, like a spotlight on specific treatments, and the treatment that I chose to look at was ketamine. And I went down the rabbit hole after that and looked at other um, other substances like MDMA and uh, psilocybin. And a lot of what I was finding, not just in the research, but also in how clinics are advertising these. Uh, these substances for treatment is that a lot of it was just focused on the substances themselves without psychotherapy involved. And I'd love to see more uh, studies focusing on what does it look like to incorporate psychotherapy and what kind of outcomes do we see based on that? Um, I, I was looking around and this is a little disheartening for me. I was looking around at ketamine clinics in Ohio and I noticed that they were advertising for uh, su- uh, substance use, so ketamine for substance use treatment. And there's nothing in the literature that I could find that gives a robust uh, support for something like ketamine with substance use. And so I think that um, as we're kind of coming into this new age of looking at uh, how previously uh, Schedule 1, Schedule 2, Schedule 3 substances could be applied for um treatment in along with individual therapy, I'm looking for more of the uh, combination of the two and not just, oh, this is, I'm sort of tired on the, okay, this is how ketamine works in in individual treatments, or this is how psilocybin works. I, I feel like we've gotten to a good point with those studies, and I'd like to see what a more robust effort would do with psychotherapy. I went a different direction with this. I kind of went old school. For me, I would like to see more about how counselors need to work on their own issues to be effective, more about counter-transference awareness, and in a sense, more about the in, uh, the factors that influence relationships in general, and I mean counseling relationships in general. And counseling is about forming those relationships, and I think we don't study it, we just assume it. So I get a little frustrated with that. I also if you want to know what I think is played out, every doctoral student who wants to study their own experience as their dissertation, because you hear these dissertation titles, you know the doctoral student or you know of the doctoral student, and you go, oh, they're studying themselves. Uh, And so my question, if they were ever to come for a job interview, okay, so what's your second shot now that you've done study, now that you're done studying yourself? You can't study yourself for your whole career. So I think some of that's getting played out, and I think some of it's out of convenience, and some of it's out that we're not getting um, students to think broader about particular research in the field that is not necessarily through their myopic vision of what their experience was. So that'll probably get me in trouble, too. Yeah, I, I will say, so it generated all kinds of thoughts for me in, in the discussion, so I appreciate it. I, the navel-gazing thing, I'm, I'm over, right? Uh, you know, I don't really want to see much of that. It, and it kind of segues into what I was going to say anyway, is this perceptions research and 
I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. Um, perceptions matter and what people think matters, but we need more research on efficacy. Uh, we need to really start looking at what works, what's helpful, what's advantageous and why. And, you know, I, I start to think about how much we're we're missing out on. You know, there's just came across some some stuff the other day about how these new um, Ozempic and, and diabetic medications being taken for weight loss are effective with substance use and abuse because of the way they operate. Um, at least anecdotally, this is what we're hearing. But we're not seeing a whole lot funded and a whole lot going into studying this relatively cheap uh, to manufacture medication, although it's you know kind of blown up and hard to get right now, with very little side effects that can be used for something as serious as as substance abuse treatment. So yeah, I'm I'm over the navel gazing. I want to see more research on efficacy. Love to see more integration of technology. And like Mitch said, I want to see counselors in the research. Um, you know, I want to see counseling the effectiveness of psychotherapy coming back into the research. And I think we see these kind of short-term studies, uh, people wanting to take a look at, you know, revitalized techniques and things that we feel like we already know are effective and impactful. I, I want to see some new stuff. I want to see new things. Um, and and like Elliot said, um, start replicating some of the things that we need to continue to, to uh show is effective. The only other thing I'll, I'll have to say on this is in terms of identity, I, I think we need more research that looks at identity uh, differently. And in that, I mean, this uh, this broader sense of identity and, and cultural identity, um, just picking out one culture isn't, isn't effective anymore, right? We know we're not just one identity. So we need to start looking at this more broadly. Uh, and not just picking out these individual identities and saying, okay, this this particular thing is efficacious for this identity, because we are more than just the one. So that may mean more complexity in our work, and, and we need to to accept that and start moving forward with that. So to stay on this serious note, were you into any comedians as a child? And what did you like about those acts? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again... It doesn't age well, but Bill Cosby, man, his stand-up was hilarious. Uh, Lenny Bruce, I had a cousin who had, you know, his records. And uh, then I got into George Carlin. And, of course, Jonathan Winters was always there for me. Like, when I got to stay up late, you know, on watch him on The Tonight Show, I just, I was, uh, I was amazed. Because what he was doing was very similar to what I was doing in my bedroom at night. You know, he would, like, con construct little shows in his head. And I had this whole kind of thing going. So, yeah, they were amazing. I do regret um, uh, female comics have become so precious to me. Um, I always tell my students, watch uh, Leanne Morgan and Chelsea Handler. They're coming from diametrically opposed positions on the comedy spectrum, but they're hilarious. They're both hilarious, regardless of your beliefs, you know. Uh, but there were, I think Joan Rivers, she was probably the only one that I, that stands out in my memory and she was funny, but yeah, I think, uh, Cosby, uh, Jonathan Winters and, and Don Rickles. I was fascinated with Don Rickles cause I, I didn't want to say mean things, but he did it in such a funny way. I was like, actually that's pretty good. And then I, I have to throw in Bob Newhart, the button down mind album. Oh my gosh. I love that one. So admittedly, uh, I love this question and I lost about two hours of my day to watching uh, comedians 
on Comedy Central. This used to be something that my mom and I, when she was homeschooling me, every every uh, day at lunch, we would watch whatever Comedy Central special there was. Um, we both loved uh, Mitch Hedberg. Uh, we both loved uh, Louis Black at the time. Uh, I love that like that stuff really helped me make sense of everything that was politically going on in like 2001 to 2000 and you know, four or five, whenever those specials were airing. Um, I am going to cheat a little bit here in that my favorite uh, comedy show was Whose Line Is It Anyway? Um, And I'm sure many people remember that fondly with uh, Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery, Wayne Brady, uh, Ohio's own Drew Carey, of course. Uh, That was a family event for us Every night it was on, we would all sit down and watch Who's Line. I love that show, and uh, I miss it. It's still having episodes, but I do miss it. Elliot, I think we're generationally about the same. And as I constructed my list, you said them all. I'm going to add something to that. I mean, you mentioned Jonathan Winters and Bob Newhart. And what I liked about particularly Newhart was with Winters, it's just a free-flowing mind. It's it's uh, Robin Williams at a at a, for a different generation. But with Bob Newhart, he was having these conversations with people who weren't in the room. And you were laughing at the the responses that you were making up in your own head for the person on the other side of the phone, uh, for example. Um, but I'm gonna say Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and the 2000 year old man. And what do I like specifically about those acts is there's a lot of improvisation that goes on with that. And I, I recall being a, a tween and sitting on my front porch at night with a friend of mine, and we would just do improvisational. He would take a character and he would be interviewing me as, as a different character. And we would just riff on that for a while. Now, why I like it is because I think that's what counselors do. They are essentially doing improvisational work without the comedy. They're listening, they're responding, they're reacting to the other the other person in a way that it is. So yeah, I put Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, Jonathan Winters, and Bob Newhart. Those are awesome choices, Marty. You and I should do the ten thousand year old counselor at the next Aces. <laughs> I I pay extra to see it. I so if for total aside here. Bob Newhart did a sketch with Mad TV as a therapist, the Stop It sketch, um, that I show in techniques every time I teach it, um, because it's fantastic. It's hilarious. You Um, know, uh, Eric, one director told him, can you please stop the stammering? Can you just say the line without the stammering? And he was like, no, this is is the comedy. I'm (laughs) sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) I love it. That's one of my favorites. So I, I I know this is a judgment-free zone, so I feel safe saying this, but Gallagher. Um, and I, I mean, it, those like prop comics and stuff are really popular. And, and it represents a period of time for me that was relatively stable at home. And we had this routine and those were types of things that we watched, right? Gallagher was really popular in these prop comics. And uh, I remember living on base at the time. My father's in the military. And uh, groups of guys getting together and their families and watching these shows uh, in different houses and all the kids running around. So it's, it's attached to these really positive memories. 
I go back and watch Gallagher now, and I'm like, what was I laughing at? You know, <laughs> like at this point in time. Uh, but it, it just holds a, a fondness for me. I think there were lots of great examples here. Um, you know, Mitch Hedberg is one of you know of my all-time favorites. There's just too many to list, right? Robin Williams, um, Chris Rock's stand-up was great. You know, watched a lot of uh, Richard Pryor. Things I shouldn't have been watching at ages I shouldn't have been watching them, but hold such fond memories for me and, and still will get laughs out of me, you know, consistently to date. You know, but who doesn't like seeing a grown man in rainbow suspenders smash a watermelon with a sledgehammer? Right? Yeah. It's gold. Um, so for me, I, this was a different approach for me. This question came into my head, not more like it was referenced because it, it it brought back memories and it wasn't like, oh, I remember being so into this person because I don't really think I were, I was like, well, one of them I definitely liked more than the other. But the thing is, is I grew up in a shelter ish kind of home where, you know, a lot of exposure to NPR and PBS and and, you know, a few network things. But for the most part, I mean, I didn't I needed my friends to tell like to tell me what the cool songs on the radio were like. I'm like, how do you know, like this song is by Madonna? Like, how do you know that it was like magic to me that they had all of this pop culture information? So as I was growing up, you know, I sometimes look to them and be like, what should I listen to? Um, or they would just say, you have to listen to this. So I know that I had a Polly Shore tape and I had a Dennis Leary tape. And, and I think what I liked about them is not even like specifically their acts necessarily, you know, I mean, at 13, even I don't think I was really into like chain smoking and doing a lot of Coke or anything like that. But um, it, it, it opened me up. It like, introduced me to all of these concepts and things in the world that I just didn't realize were like things that people uh, found amusing and entertaining enough to purchase and to purchase their products and their movies and everything over and over. Well, some of some things with Polly Shore, actually, they can be funny, but maybe not necessarily because of Polly Shore. But at the same time, I just <sighs> Dennis Leary actually ended up surprising me, though. I think he 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 actually has some more talent and and uh, a depth to him that that Polly Shore didn't. But at the same time, those aren't the people that I would gravitate towards today. And I'm not even sure I did then. It was just what I listened to. I also had an Adam Sandler tape, but that one I just didn't listen to very often for whatever reason. He screeched a lot. Just as a as a as a tag on um, a friend of mine and I, we saw Gareth Reynolds in Cleveland a couple of weeks ago, uh, about five weeks ago funny guy though and he comes through often and he does a whole show that's just crowd work no material he just comes out well and works the crowd but it's like this is a guy on top of his game so keep your eyes open for and your ears open for him i think the next question is mine what are some of your favorite edutainment techniques let me just say i'm really digging the questions this week really psyched about these questions i was you know this is something that uh marty was talking about improv earlier and I think it's always cool when, as a student, I'm given a space to be inserted into a role and also to see my classmates inserted into a role, whether that be the uh, the role of a like a mock counselor or the role of a mock um, client 
we just had a class uh, earlier this month where um, I got to be a mock client struggling with a uh, substance use disorder. And that was something to me that was enlightening for a couple of reasons was that I found myself having some pretty interesting reactions to what my, uh, what my partner was saying. Um, so I, I felt myself getting like a little defensive about when, um, when I was asked about questions about my fake alcohol use. Um, so I think like something that is really creative that puts students in a outside their comfort zones and, um, as well as getting, giving them a chance to do something that they would never normally do, but is relevant to counseling. That always has resonated with me, those kinds of activities. I had a hard time with edutainment just because, I don't know, the, the term feels to me as if it's cheapening the the experience of education. Some people would argue that, uh, no, that's what that's what lights people up. And But that's never been my experience in trying to do prescriptive kinds of things. Um, experiential exercises, when I'm working with a small group, those are the kind of things that I think are a bit entertaining and also educational in the process. So I will interject these to, and particularly in group work class, which is which is cool because I can do different types of experiential pieces and introduce them either as icebreakers that you can do with groups, or this is something that you might want to do to do depth work later on. So uh, first week of of class for the summer, and I wound up uh, doing the ball string toss where people in the circle get to toss it back and forth to everybody and say something about it, about themselves. And then you get to use that as a metaphor for connecting uh, people across the group and what then we start to talk about what connection is and what that really means. And then I flipped on that. I mean, we we spent a long time processing it. I appreciate it because I had a small group class, so it was easy for us to do that. And then we flipped and the second one I did was uh, Satir's Parts Party, which had a completely different kind of level of engagement for them. They got very deep. Now I didn't ask them about what was what their parts were. I just wanted to get an idea of what the experience was like for them. So we didn't get into the details of what it was, but it was interesting to see them go from this one sort of light experiential connecting kind of uh, ex- uh, exercise to this deeper exercise. And I told them, I said, this this is going to feel different. The second one's going to feel different. And it was for them. So I, I don't, I, I'm not sure what students take away in terms of entertainment that they can practically use. So that's why I think maybe why I have a problem with it, but the educational piece, the experiential piece for me is the entertainment versus me lecturing on theory. I don't know. In, in some ways I, I edutainer sounds kind of appealing to me. I, I bring a lot of things to, uh, you know, the in-person experiences that I teach, and I do a lot of experiential activities with props. Funny enough to talk about Gallagher earlier, um, but I, I bring um, hula hoops for an activity called helium hoop, and I like to see them panic, thinking they're going to have to try to hula hoop. Um, 
Uh, you know, I have an activity with mouse traps based on on trust and communication. Um, you know, I bring a lot of different things in that I want them to connect to the concepts and to move and to engage. Um, and I, th- I think in person that that makes a big difference. I think when we're talking about online and at a distance, we have to start thinking about how those things need to change and how our learners engage with content there. If anybody's watched, you know, I, I have kids that are 10 and 12. Um, YouTube is everything. So these YouTube channels now, the types of editing, the types of activities they engage in, the humor that's there, I really want to start bringing more of this into the online space and really start using it to engage and capture attention um, because some of the techniques are really effective and helpful. I think there is a way for us to be engaging for students to enjoy the content and to still get what they need. That being said, there are areas of this that aren't going to fit into that box, right? There are things that that we can't entertain around, but that need to be experiences that that they're fully engaged in with a different part of their perception, right? Um, I think we talk about skills practice, we talk about concept learning, those are different things. When we talk about the counseling process itself, therapeutic alliance, connection, trauma, the types of things that they're going to need to really invest themselves in, that's where we have to separate the entertainment part. We have to separate the the engagement in that way. So I think there's ways in which it fits and ways in which it doesn't. I like it, again, for content learning, to bring in those different things, to get people moving and doing uh, is really helpful. And I think there's a lot of great um, you know, editing and, and kind of entertainment techniques that we can take to help with that content part. When it comes to the counseling process, we can be creative, but we really start to get into this is what we need to be effective and to make those connections. I think that's when things have to take that serious tone and they have to be prepared for what the work really is. Well, in a in a different way, I don't again, I, I don't have the same type of experience. I, I do know that I like most things that are interactive. I like inter uh, those uh, activities that can get students just like everybody's been saying, involved and, um, you know, thinking about the material differently. I do enjoy bringing in, you know, for someone who didn't grow up with any pop culture, I like looking for pop culture, either references or things that are going on that might um, be representative or uh, have a focus on what we're talking about, or if there's a way that that can fit in or a piece of art um, or music or video that isn't just somebody talking about, you know, the topic that we're, that we're discussing in class that day, but it might be more of um, a way to get to that topic, something to stimulate the conversation from a different angle in that, that kind of way. So while I don't have as well of a formed answer, I do um, think that getting creative is part of the fun, even though I usually have to scale it back a lot because my head, the ideas are much bigger, but also much more effective than they end up being in real life. Um, And I have to make it less complex, but I like bringing in pop culture and getting people doing things. These are great answers. And I appreciate that. Yeah, there's a balance, you know, um, if one can use an element of of theater or the arts to highlight a point, then that's, I think, a resourceful use of edutainment, you know, but you don't just want to be throwing shticks in for the sake of it. Um, 
I've used music, you know, parody songs for decades. Uh, you know, we have a song, Give Me an Antidepressant, sung to the tune of Give Me uh, the Old Time Religion. And so you get like a verse like, uh, what was it? SSRIs bridged the chasm when my mood would drop in spasms, but I couldn't have orgasms. They're not good enough for me. Give me an antidepressant. You know, so you got your main effect, you got your side effect all in the same verse. So all of the, the song verses help people memorize, you know, aspects of the drug class and music, totally different type of memory. And a lot of people find, oh, yeah, that helps me get around if I'm freaked out about the science stuff. And it just provides a path. I started doing some magic tricks in class to illustrate principles um, and um, integrating my theater background. We have a module now called Developmental Bedtime Stories that I think Carl's going to help me launch on the Internet, too. But it's just another kind of weird way to tell, uh, talk about developmental sequences while also putting some humor in and making it colloquial enough so people can resonate uh, with it without the jargon. Those are some things I like to do. So my question this week is, if you woke up and found yourself in a different time period, which era would you want to live in? You know, I'm cheating on this one. I tried to think there, there, there is a uh, movie, Midnight in Paris, uh, with uh, Woody Allen. And one of the discoveries in this is the guy goes to, he goes to Paris and he discovers, he romanticizes earlier generations of where the artists were in Paris. And he goes back to, and kind of magically goes back to those places and finds uh, a woman who romanticizes about a previous uh, time in life. And the whole concept is we romanticize about previous times. And so I was trying to think if I was going to go back, well, I'd like to avoid diseases. I'd like to have a long life. I, you know, all the, I had all these conditions about where would I go back? And what I came up with would be, I would like to be 10 years older than I am now, which means I probably should have been born in the 19, early uh, 1950s or so. The reason I say that is because I was a little too young for the sixties generation. And I would have liked to have been older in the 60s generation so I could have appreciated and also engaged in all the counterculture stuff that was going on now. So that's my choice. All right. Well, I, I'm going to cheat um, just in a totally different way. Um, I noticed I, I looked at the question several times to make sure that this would, uh, you know, technically fit within the question response. And I'm going to go with a few thousand years in the future rather than earlier. Um, so I'm, I'm a sci-fi nut. I love the idea of, you know, space travel and, um, you know, seeing what it is the future holds. And, you know, I would be curious and hopeful that that, that would be something we would see out of the human race in a, in a couple of thousand years. So really that, that fascination with the future and, and being able to explore beyond here, I think would be fascinating for me. Uh, I think if I did have to go past, I don't know that I would have a really good answer. Like, you know, I would be more interested in what previous generations were doing than living in an era in the past myself. Right. I love that historical context. Like Marty said, I, I kind of I'd like to be a part of um things that that I know transpired in my my family history, just to see how those things played out, how they really happened. 
you know, what it was like to immigrate here and, and, you know, what those generations thought and were like that I didn't get to meet. So I'll throw that out there, even though it was nonspecific, but yeah, I'm, I'm going with a couple thousand years in the future. I can relate to that, Eric, as only a few hours ago, Mike and I were actually complaining that we were promised the Jetsons and the world is not the Jetsons. And where's our, where are our personal robots? What's up with that? Um, so my, my mind did go to the future as well, but I'm going to go and play, you know, pick a time period that I know things, the things that happened in that time period. Um, cause I did always want to be a flapper. I want to go to the twenties and I always want, yeah, I always wanted to be a flapper girl and, uh, just hang out and just enjoy. I don't know. It was always appealing to me. I like to dance. I could do that a whole lot. Um, also, the dresses are really shaky, and that seems like a lot of fun. And I also always wanted to have, like, the finger wave in my hair. I asked for it for my wedding, but I did not get that. Um, I think it was more complicated than I probably gave it credit to to accomplish. And I for sure didn't want to be in a chair for four hours. But I don't think that had anything to do with it at the time. I just think they didn't want to do it. All right. But that's it. <laughs> Now that wave's a tricky one. I could get into a hole. We won't go there, but yeah. Um, yeah, like Eric, I kind of went forward and backward, and I barely survived, like, childhood. I, I was like, holy crap, you know, just the medical stuff. Yeah, I don't know. But but I'll tell you, I would, I would like to go forward, and I wouldn't even need – I would go, I don't know, 300 years because I would want to see, are we making any incremental progress? Uh, but I, if I could go backward, I would want to be somewhere between 1890 and 1940. That is, is considered golden age of stage magic. And really, until Doug Henning, some of you may know, great Canadian magician, uh, died of uh, liver cancer at a fairly young age. But, you know, he he toured with the biggest illusion shows since the great Thurston, Houdini, Harry Keller, John Neville Maskelin. Uh, but that was like that was in between 1974 when he really caught on and 1940. There's a huge dip in large scale magic shows. And I would just love to see some of those original illusions. The Devotier, uh, it's a chair illusion. He'd make a woman vanish. It's freaking brilliant. I would love to see that like live, you know, love to see Houdini live. I, that would just be fantastic. But. You know, I'd I'd want to get my tickets in advance because the diseases of the day would probably drop me in a week. So I'd need to get to that show fairly quick. Yeah, when uh, when I was thinking about this question, full disclosure, the rules were if you wanted to go in the future, you can go into the future. If you wanted to hop back in the past, you can hop back in the past. I was very excited uh, to think about going back and being part of the medieval era. And, you know, I'm. I, I remember the first time that I went to medieval times back in like Myrtle Beach when I was like, I don't know, like 11 years old, but it was perhaps the most life changing experience that I had. Just, oh gosh, I just want to be a knight. I want to ride on a horse. I want to listen to, you know, Dolly Parton sing those weird country music songs at, uh, uh, at medieval times for some reason. But the more that I think about it, the less I want to go back in the past because of those medical issues, because of, you know, sanitary issues like it's it's tough to want to go back there and so i I wonder if like people will think about that 
um, 20 years from now? Will they want to go back to the, you know, will people who are, you know, age 20 and 2040 want to hop back 20 years in 2020 uh, and so on and so forth? And I, I don't know. It's kind of interesting in that, you know, part of me just kind of enjoys where I am right now. But, you know, I, I, I think that's that's where I'm at is I don't know if I want to go back into the past anymore. Just just for the interested listener, there's a fantastic popular physics book by Ronald Mallet. I think it's called The Time Machine. He's the only physicist who has actually come up with um, equations that show it's possible, but from the point you create it, you could only go forward in the future. That was his. That was the the, the big realization he had, and he did it with beams of light. It was fascinating. But his dad had died of a heart attack when he was very young. And he always wondered, could I get back and warn my dad? And it's a lovely book. I, I highly uh, recommend that just as a as a add-in. All right. I've got the next question and um, our last question uh, for the evening. What aspects of growing up led you to the profession of counseling? Whenever I get any opportunity to chat with some of the greats, and I've done some interview columns for the Family Journal and and now doing some things with ASGW's master class, wanting to find out. So what growing up uh, influenced you to become a counselor or if you had that influence? No, no, that's a tough question because I don't think it's a simple response for me. I think there's a lot of things that keep me engaged in the counseling field now because of those early experiences. I'm still interested in uh, some of the impacts and things that, that, of things that I've went through and experienced and seen others experience over the course of my life, and particularly in childhood. But I think what drew me in the most and what kept me tied to this was my grandmother and her influence. She was kicked out of her home at 15. She was one of 12, uh, but the only child with a different father uh, than the rest of her siblings. And the only thing she could find to do at the time was uh, in-home care for the elderly. And she did that until she turned 72 from that point on. And I spent summers with her, um, and often she would live in with the people she took care of. And just having all of these experiences and seeing the way she interacted and helped others who, you know, most of the time were, were in very end stage. This was like live in hospice more than it was care. And to hear some of those conversations and the way she handled herself, the way she extended care and love and compassion, uh, the way she defined love, I think for me was really just impactful. It's not this romantic thing or this, um, or it isn't always. And it, it, love can can be this compassion, this extension of humanity, this connection, this understanding that there are many things about our experiences that are the same that we're going to share and death is one. And I, and I think it was something that profoundly impacted me once I learned the humanistic part of our work and what makes us different as counselors. Yeah, this is a complex question because it definitely wasn't one thing. And I would actually say that through my childhood, you know, it's two sides of the same coin, I suppose, but I was being very pushed away from counseling. I didn't want to have to deal with people. Um, this, I'm, this not a good endorsement for myself at the moment, but, um, but I think it was because I also felt like too close to things and I knew I wasn't going to be able to leave it. 
like I'm talking when I'm like 20, 21, by that time, I'm like, I can't, I can't mm -mm, because I I wasn't in a place where I knew, I I knew I wouldn't be able to leave it and I take everything home with me. So I tried to do a little bit of more research based in psychology for a little while. But um, at the same time, what was pushing me away are the things that I believe make me a successful enough counselor um you know make me a good counselor i think i am uh can't call up my clients and ask them but it's because i had those experiences because i spent a lot of time thinking in counseling terms but i didn't have the vocabulary for it my brain kind of naturally went to those ways of like wondering why a person reacted a certain way and um you know trying to make sense of it all because i think also i didn't have a great ability to make sense of it naturally. So I put a lot of effort and very intentionally tried to make sense of people and interactions. But it was overwhelming for a long time and growing up. And yet, over time, as I became a young adult and able to kind of process things differently and in a different environment, perhaps just kind of having my own life going on differently, I, I was slowly able to come to a place where I could use the things I learned growing up to really put it into a framework and context professionally. And it's been pretty useful to this point. So I think it was a, it was a push at first and then a pull. I like that uh, a push at first and then a pull. Cause like I resonate with that. I think, you know, for me, it was definitely surviving abuse episodes in my childhood. Um, and then I kind of, I made a beeline into theology. I think the idea was I want to know what the hell's going on on this planet. What, what's the deal here? You know, and then realizing that whatever the deal is, you know, we, we do need to deal with it face to face, one-on-one here. Uh, If there's a creator of the universe, great, but we still have to deal with it here. (laughs) And then I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But so there, there, there was a trajectory, but those were kind of two pivotal choice points. Yeah, um, I really love this question. I, I think uh, I could probably take up a full podcast on it for sure. You know, when I was, I, I first started going to counseling when I was 13 years old, and I'm 34 now. So that's a good 21 years of, of counseling. I still go to counseling even when things are good. Uh, right now, things are good. I'm still going to counseling. I, I know that it's always there, and, and I, uh, I, I feel confident whenever I think like, oh, it's it's always there. It's always there for me to fall back on. But my first counselor, his name was Tom. And Tom was probably the first or second most influential person in my life. I so sincerely believe in the power of counseling because of him and his uh, way of counseling. If I could be half the counselor that he was, then I imagine I'd be a pretty damn good counselor. And I think I got lucky in that way to see him work and to see the theoretical orientation that he had. I saw Tom for quite a bit of time on and off uh, up until really college age. I wasn't really seeing him weekly uh, late in from like late in high school on, but it was still something that we connected with. And I, I think that's certainly my number one reason is that I was I was just convinced so profoundly that this is a profession that's necessary. This is a profession that's important. 
And this is a profession that can have drastic implications for how people are are helped and how their mental and emotional well-being um, can be improved going into the future. Uh, this is a question I ask every student who comes in for an interview for our program. Um, I want to think, I want them to think about that connection because, you know, I believe we are training people to be good counselors. I also believe that they've already had some life experiences of models of people who do that. For me, it's got to be mom. Mom uh, was uh, trained as a librarian and a engineer who was doing a math class at a community college walked into the library. My father, they met and uh, got married. And at the time, uh, mom decided she was going to stay home and raise a family and also help with her aging parents. So, but my dad also encouraged her and she would have done it anyways to get involved doing things out in the community. So she got really involved in schools and advocating for schools and education. And she got really involved in advocating for mental health in the community. So, you know, I had this model of uh, her engaging in the community and doing, I think it comes from her Catholicism, doing the kinds of things that, and her spirit, she was just that way, uh, to help other people along. And uh, so I think that was sort of my largest influence. And I've had a few counselors along the way, you know, Mitch reminded me of some, some of them through the church and some of them through a Lutheran church, even though I was a Catholic, that were very helpful in kind of letting me know this relationship is in, uh, is an important relationship and modeling some good behaviors for me for that. So thank you. Yeah. A nice big reflective question that you'll probably think more of uh, after this episode. And I hope the listeners will will think more of it if you're in the counseling profession. Those people who have influenced you uh, early on growing up that uh, became models for you in some way or another. So we have a final shot question, and it's simple. What are you watching now? Uh, I am watching um, Yellowstone and working our way through it. Besides the all bluey all the time um, going on, well, did just finish Yellow Jackets. So that's kind of the ser- serious, good quality show that I was watching. But now I'm I'm watching more people. Um, just finished The Last of Us. I'm back into The Crown. And uh, I've spent a lot of time digging up YouTube videos of street magicians. and. Um, just blown away by the way that they're redefining magic. There's a whole club, the 52, which they each have a a, a card from the deck. You know, Ian Frisch uh, wrote a book. I think it was published last year called Magic is Dead. And it was about this rejuvenation of street magic. And so not just people like David Blaine, but, you know, Daniel Madsen, D- Martin, people who have been inspired by Blaine, a lot of female magicians. And the stuff that they do, I mean, especially with cell phones, working cell phones into magic, it's almost enough to get me over my total hatred and phobia about cell phones. I'm just so excited. Yeah, a bit, bit of a guilty pleasure of mine is I love watching poker. I'm really interested in the process that, that people go through, especially as I'm reading more about 
what gambling is going to look like in in Ohio and people who are going to be seeking mental health treatment for that. I've never actually played poker in any amount of serious capacity. Um, I've always been interested in it, but I've just never played. Uh, One other thing that I'm watching is uh, Chernobyl, which I'm sure pretty much everybody in the entire world has seen by now, but I just can't, like, I can't get enough of it. It's fantastic. Can't recommend it enough. I haven't seen it yet, Mitch, but uh, it's on my watch list for such a long time. It's really great. Yeah, I'm going to go with, uh, now I, I want an amen on this one, Firefly amen. by Josh Whedon. I channel surf during the day. I got three screens. One screen has has something going. And Comet TV, for whatever reason, is doing all of the shows from Firefly. Now, I purchased that a long time ago, but now I'm hooked back into it, and I want to go through the series. There's only one season and, I don't know, maybe 10 shows, so it's going to be a quick play for me. But Firefly, it is a, for those of you who don't know, it's sort of a science fiction space cowboy opera. But not opera in the music sense, sort of soap. I don't want to say soap opera. Well, how would you just, how would other people describe it? I actually think that's a pretty good description, Marty. Okay. I mean, there's love stories and there's character development in it. That's what I mean by opera. And there's Um, a lot of angst in the the fact that it's (laughs) it's only survived the one season. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And then they went on and did a movie on it called um, Serenity. Serenity. Okay, thanks to the firing squad, Mitch, Stephanie, Eric, and Elliot. Look for some of these characters on their podcast on thepodtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme music is from Menage à Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of the Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.